Hey, welcome everybody. Uh, this is Scott Rothschild with KASB, and I'm with Mark Tallman, uh, Associate Director, I always want to say Editor, Just Associate Director for Advocacy. And uh, this is another installment of Ask KASB. We take questions, uh, really dealing with anything with the Kansas public school system, and uh, Mark will answer those questions. Uh, Mark, we did receive a question on how the state helps districts, school districts, on bond projects. And I know this is a somewhat complex formula. Uh, could you kind of explain how the state assists uh, districts? Uh, I certainly can and would just note for people who want the details that are listening and viewing, this is one of the blog posts I've made in the Tallman Education Report. Mm-hmm. So if you're not linked to that, just uh, just Google that. Um, and, and, and let's just start by explaining, as probably most people know, but, but maybe people aren't aware of the details. There is a very big difference in local school district property tax bases. Education traditionally was funded at the local level through property taxes, so were school buildings. Uh, In fact, school buildings were exclusively funded by local property taxes until uh, basically 1993. Uh, And districts can only raise money based on their valuation. And the valuations per pupil, in other words, the the amount of wealth available that you can tax, ranges from a low of about $1,000 per pupil in Fort Leavenworth to over um, half a billion dollars in Burlington. Now, those are kind of outliers. Uh, uh, Fort Leavenworth is entirely a military base with almost nothing to tax. Mm-hmm. Burlington has a nuclear power plant uh, and not a, a lot of other population or students, and so it's extremely wealthy. But even if you throw out those extremes, um, kind of the a tra- traditional school districts really started about $25,000 per pupil and go all the way up into several hundred thousand dollars mm-hmm. uh, per pupil. That, that's, a, that's a huge variation. And what it means is that in order to raise kind of a comparable amount of money, lower wealth districts would have to have vastly higher property taxes to do that, whereas our very wealthy districts could fund their schools at relatively little tax effort. Mm -hmm. A a way of thinking about it is last year, the average school district bond payment per pupil Mm -hmm. was about $1,200. Of course, that's an average. Some districts have no debt that they're paying for, some much much higher, but you might think of the fact that out of the roughly $12,000 to $13,000 per pupil, about 1,200 of that on average is what would go to paying off construction bonds. Mm-hmm. There's also other money that goes into to, uh, uh, that, that schools spend from capital outlay, et cetera, but, but we'll focus on that. Uh, and that simply means that um, uh, the, again, I'm going to kind of look at my blog, blog to say that if you throw out the extremes, um, it would take over 46 mills mm-hmm. in those districts at $25,000 per pupil to raise that $1,200 per pupil, the wealthier districts could do it for literally two or three mills. A vast so difference. Vast, yeah. vast difference. Yeah. So the state has come up with a way to try to close that gap by providing state aid. So here's how it works, and, and for those of you listening on podcasts, we're not going to do charts or anything, so kind of follow along if you will. The formula is based on the idea that the district at the lowest wealth per pupil Mm-hmm. The state will pay 75% of the cost of their bonds. Whatever amount that is, zero, the state will pay zero. Whatever it is above that, the state will pay 75%. 
That 75%, though, only applies to that lowest district, which again is a military installation, um, probably rarely has bond issues. I, I honestly don't know what they have right now. Mm-hmm. But if you move, and, and so that's where it starts at. And then for every $1,000 in assessed valuation, the percentage drops 1%. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you remember what I said, that those outside of Fort Leavenworth, kind of the poorest regular non-military districts in the state are at about twenty-five dollars to $26,000 per pupil. Mm-hmm. If you subtract $25,000 or $26,000 from $1,000, that's 25 percentage points, correct? Mm-hmm. So that means you take 25 points off 75%, which means the poorest districts outside of, of kind of that special yeah. exception, the state would pay about 50% is kind of what it amounts to. Interestingly enough, the kind of average or median district valuation per pupil is about $76,000. Mm-hmm. So the aid formula reaches zero mm-hmm. right at about the average. So a way of thinking about it is the lowest wealth half of the districts in the state get some type of state aid, the half of the districts that are above average in wealth do not get any state aid, and the percent you get simply depends on how poor you are. Mm -hmm. The poorest districts, generally speaking, may get up to half the aid paid by the state, but that drops down so that most of those districts are getting much less than 50% all the way down to zero. So, so why is it important uh, that, that the state have this kind of sliding scale based on a, on a district's wealth? Well, the, the idea behind it, I think, is, is twofold. Part of it is, is equity that the Kansas courts have talked about. They've really said that, and this is true not only in Kansas, but in most other states that have looked at school finance, the quality of a student's education cannot depend on the local wealth of their district, mm-hmm. particularly if education is a state responsibility and if the state has has standards for all districts and all kids. We expect all students to reach a certain level of attainment. The courts have said, and I think most people would agree, you can't expect every district to get kids to certain levels of educational attainment, but then say, it's just up to whatever local wealth you have to do that. Mm -hmm. The second, I think, is just, frankly, kind of political and practical, it just means that a significant number of people in the state would have to be having substantially higher property taxes, really probably politically untenable property taxes, to raise comparable amounts of dollars. And that's why this aid, a type of aid formula to help with bond and interest costs um, passed even before the courts ruled that it needed to. Now, this, this formula helps the lower wealth districts. But it doesn't fully equalize uh, things, does it? And that's that's a very interesting point because I think sometimes people have the perception that, well, since the state is paying Mm -hmm. more of your budget, that must mean your your local contribution is less. You're not putting in your fair share. Actually, what we find is that even with this equalization aid, those lower wealth districts still have to pay more than even the district 
uh, uh, at the median. Uh, in other words, for the, the districts at the bottom, those that, that are entitled to 50%, the state is paying 50%, but to raise that average amount, to raise that $1,200 per pupil, those districts still have to pay between 20 and 30 mils mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to raise that amount, whereas districts at the median are paying about 15 mils Mm -hmm. to raise those dollars, and all of the districts above that are actually paying less than 15 mils to raise the same amount. So I think that's the key thing to keep in mind. While the state is helping these districts, and the very poorest districts are getting quite a lot of help, that doesn't mean their taxpayers are getting some kind of deal. Mm -hmm. They're having to put in just as much money. In fact, they're having to put in more money locally as a tax rate than wealthier districts, even though they're not, even though the money raised, a share of it is coming from the state as a whole. So the state policy, it, it means lower wealth districts are getting some assistance, but it is not fully equal. That is correct. Lower wealth districts get help to let them raise closer to the same right. amount of money at the same rate, but it is, but they are still having to put in more. They're still having to require higher local taxes you might think of it this way, they have to pay more to get that state aid than districts that are not getting state aid have to put in to raise the same amount of money. So in addition to this kind of complex formula, there's a relatively new provision that kind of caps the amount of bonds that can be released each year. Can you talk about that? Right. It, it's important to understand that, uh, frankly, the voters of Kansas have, have responded uh, to this program over the years and recently uh, by passing a lot of bond issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Kansas enrollment has grown some. In some areas, it's grown rather dramatically. Many districts in the state were, were decades old, and there were concern about raising quality. Voters have approved a lot of bond issues, and so the state aid portion has been going up. The state did two things. One, the that they did about three years ago was to actually lower the the formula. So, uh, you know, we talk about how those lower wealth districts have to pay something. They used to not have to pay quite as much. Mm-hmm. Now there's, there's a higher burden as a result of this. But the other thing that the state did was put an absolute cap on how much new debt can be approved every year. This was uh, adopted by uh, two years ago by the legislature, the 2017 session. It was modified this year by the 2018 legislature. Mm -hmm. But even with these modifications, there's an overall dollar cap that says every year the State Board of Education can only approve so much new debt to go to the voters. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of exceptions. For example, if a district uh, has has low debt per pupil or has low debt as a share of their assessed valuation, they don't have to get approval from the state. If you haven't had a bond issue in 25 years, you don't have to get approval from the state. And the state this year put in some kind of adjustments that would cap the amount that any one district would take out of that pool of money and put in kind of an inflationary adjustment. Nonetheless, uh, it is very possible that in any year, the amount of bond issues that local districts want to submit to their voters, and remember, all of these also have to be approved by their local voters, all bond issues do do in Kansas for local school boards, Um, you could have a case where where some district would get left out, not be able to to go to their voters um, because, because we've reached this cap. It didn't happen last year. We thought it might, but one bond issue early in the process 
actually failed. Mm-hmm. So that created some more cap room. I guess is that what we say <laughs> say in sports? There was some cap room was made available last year. Uh, we're going to have to see this year how it will look. Well, I know it makes a lot of districts nervous. Uh, it does. Yeah. It does because I think what districts you know many will kind of try to look strategically. When do we need to do this right. in terms of our growth? How does this maybe fit into other you know other cycles that are taking place within the state uh, w- within the local district? And and this could mean you'd kind of have to wait in line before you have your turn to go to the voters, and and that could cause other districts to also stack up as well at a time when many districts are also concerned about interest rates possibly going up, uh, about the cost of construction uh, uh, materials perhaps rising. So I, I think there will be considerable concern uh, if this actually does go into effect this year or any time in the near future. Okay. Well, Mark, thanks. I appreciate this. And, and uh, if you want, as Mark mentioned earlier, if you want to read more about this subject, about state aid uh, for school district bond projects, go to the Tallman Education Report. And uh, Mark's blog is there uh, with, uh, with other uh, blogs, too. So thank you very much.